This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. The most memorable interviews and listener calls from the week that was on Fight Back with Libby Snymer. Welcome to the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Good afternoon. Welcome to the Saturday edition of the Best of Fight Back from the week that was. On Monday, our Zoomer squad gathered for the first time since a liberal minority government was declared on federal election night the Monday before. It was an opportunity to reflect on how older Canadians were basically ignored during the election campaign, just appeased with the usual platitudes and a bit of cash. The $500 checks mailed out to Canadians 75 and older two years after they were promised. Bill Van Gorder is Chief Operating Officer and Chief Policy Officer at CARP. Peter Mugridge is Senior Editor at Zoomer Magazine. And David Kravit is Chief Membership Officer at CARP and Vice President here at Zoomer Media. Libby first asked them to comment on a call from a woman whose mother usually votes in her nursing home, but couldn't this time because there was no polling station. Even if they had been informed, what did the absence of all those polling stations in previous elections that were in nursing homes or seniors' residences? We had Elections Canada ran, uh, I don't remember the exact statistic, but I think it was less, significantly less than half as many polling places as before. So the impact of that on seniors, the further distances to travel, um, uncertainty as to where you would go compared to where you were used to going, uh, that had to compound uh, the, all of the problems, and I think that accounts for one of the reasons we had the lowest turnout ever. Um, I agree, Peter. I mean, uh, uh, I was saying before the election that I thought the parties were counting on the fact that perhaps older people who are vulnerable and a little more cautious wouldn't wouldn't go out to vote because of COVID. But this uh, this kind of crystallizes it. Yeah, and and. You know, it's a good point, Levy, because their their platforms, none of the platforms really addressed, um, you know, the the meaningful issues for seniors. Uh, they they sort of skirted around it or or threw out a few, you know, a, f- a few uh, gifts, but n- nothing substantial. And and perhaps that's the reason they they knew there was going to be a lower turnout, so they they didn't address that population. And um, you know, for you. Students um, were complaining because there were no polls at uh, universities this year. But you know, students are are you know they're mobile. They can uh, they don't need someone else to take them to vote. You know, it didn't really affect the student vote, I don't think. But certainly, if you don't have a poll in your building um, and you don't have anyone to bring you on the day of the election to the vote, then um, certainly that that sort of smacks of uh, voter suppression. And, and, you know, these people had, it, they can't get out of their bed. Like, how, how are they going to get out to a, a, a voting uh, station? So, so it's certainly very concerning. And we'll, we'll have to um, look at that again if, if similar circumstances exist in the next election. Well, yeah, and and Bill, I mean, even people who are more mobile, I mean, it just seems like it was uh, an afterthought. A lot of them, I'm sure, had family members who would have taken them to a, a poll if they if they knew like nobody 
even thought of this? Well, uh, you're absolutely right. And, uh, and we at CARP are surprised. In fact, shocked that this happened. We had conversations with people from Elections Canada as early as last December when they were planning. We were assured by them that they were making uh, appropriate plans so that seniors can vote and, in fact, had offered the help of our chapters and our 325,000 volunteers across the country to help make sure that polling places were available and that seniors were able to vote. And uh, they ended up telling us they didn't need us, that they had everything quite under control. So, uh, and I was personally in those conversations and was just uh, frankly horrified when I heard uh, last Monday that people were having uh, uh, this uh, difficulty. You have to wonder, and this is just a supposition, whether or not the elections canned officials were trying very hard and somehow uh, politically they were hamstrung and being able to carry out the plans that they certainly intended to do when I started talking to them at Christmas time last year. We're pretty angry uh, at CARP and I think among our demographic. And I think what we have to do is um, force the politicians to stop with the cliches and the pieties. And this is the insidious trap, Libby. Everybody loves seniors. Everybody knows what to say. Everybody knows the right verbiage. But they didn't get honest about the real problems. They didn't confront the real issues. None of them did. And so I think at CARP, we're going to be trying our hardest to uh, force them to recognize what's really going on and be very uh, agnostic about all the parties and say, you know, show me show me the goods now, finally, enough with the nice words. David Kravitz, Chief Membership Officer at CARP and Vice President at Zoomer Media. Bill Van Gorder, Chief Operating Officer and Chief Policy Officer at CARP. And Peter Mugridge, Senior Editor at Zoomer Magazine. You're listening to the best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. I'm Jane Brown. It was an emotional homecoming after more than a thousand days in captivity. We Canadians were collectively relieved and happy to see the two Michaels finally come home last weekend. Details on how that happened are starting to come out, including involvement by U.S. President Joe Biden, which reportedly began in August. Some explanations, like a few of the assertions from the Canadian ambassador to the U.S., are hard to believe. Kirsten Hillman has said there was no talk of freeing our hostages in the American negotiations with China to free Huawei executive Meng Wanzhou that the Chinese made an 11th-hour decision on their own to release the two Michaels. The whole episode had the air of a Cold War-era prisoner swap. But for Michael Kovrig and Michael Spavor, it is just the beginning of healing. On Monday, Libby was joined by two experts to discuss. Dr. Jeremy Paltiel, professor of politics, government, and foreign policies of Asia at Carleton University. And Dr. Stephanie Carvin, assistant professor of international affairs at Carleton University and an expert on national security issues. It is a little bit of international gaslighting, I think. Um, it is, it's, it's just patently false um, because... You know, um, I, I believe our former ambassador to China, Guy Saint Jacques, pointed out that, you know, they would have had to have been taken from prison, given clothes, uh, given showers, put on a plane. Um, 
you know, I mean, like they, they didn't just pick these guys out of jail and, and put them on planes. I mean, this clearly had been orchestrated for a, a number of hours, if not days. So, I mean, this is clearly something that was planned in time um, to coincide with the release of, of Meng Wanzhou. So, I mean, that's just very clear. Now, I mean, the thing that the question I have is whether or not Beijing realized that when it basically released the Michaels at the exact same time as Meng, that they were effectively confirming the narrative that this was, in fact, a hostage-taking, or to use a more polite term, arbitrary detention of the two Michaels. Uh, it's not clear to me whether or not they intended to send that signal. And some of the, uh, you know, signs that we've seen from the uh, Chinese state-owned media that, you know, no, this is, you know, this was completely separate, this wasn't hostage-taking, um, seems to suggest to me that maybe they are trying to backpedal a little. Uh, Jeremy Paul Thiel, what, what do you think of uh, that explanation? Um, I, I, I agree that uh, this might have been planned in advance uh, by both sides. Um, but um, I actually disagree with the narrative that uh, Stephanie has been laying forward, that the Chinese didn't expect this kind of reaction, or that they even cared. <laughs> I have um, to agree I, with yeah, you there. The, the, that they... Because the Chinese position from the very start on the arrest of Meng Wanzhou was that this was a state decision by the Canadians to support the Americans. And they reiterated that as recently as a month ago. Um, and so, and, and they always believed, regardless of what um, Mr. Trudeau might say um, and about how we talk about the rule of law, they always believed that the state had discretion. So as far as they're concerned, um, they don't think that they they are um, uh, you know putting the lie to their own position. They they already believe that the, the, yes we do we may say we do things our way and they do things their way. But as far as they're concerned, the state has discretion. End of story. And anything else is is BS as far as the Chinese are concerned. Will Canada now finally make a decision on whether to allow Huawei into our 5G networks? And uh, is Canada now freer to say no? You know, I'm, not, I'm not so certain. I think it, it, the, the, the situation of the two Michaels may have played into the decision. I think, uh, but the point is that the ground has shifted since then. Um, I think Stephanie is closer to the national security community than I am. But um, but I think that the likelihood will probably be a no, especially after the British uh, shifted their position and our Canadian position was broadly similar to that of the British one. Stephanie, so yeah, I I, I agree with that. I mean, it is it's going to be interesting, and I, I wouldn't be surprised to see a decision as soon as this week, or at least there should be, um, if only because we should provide our telecom, you know, some, some guidelines here. Um, it is interesting. There was actually a division within the national security community. You had um, certain agencies like the CSE, the Communication Security Establishment, um, who felt that, you know, Huawei, the risks of Huawei could actually be risk managed. And then you had uh, organizations like Can- uh, Canadian Security Intelligence Service or CSIS, which thought, no, no, they had like a big X beside the Huawei name. Um, and so there was a bit of a dispute there. What we have seen happen is that the companies themselves are kind of seeing where the wind's blowing and they have, you know, Bell, Telus, Rogers, they've all been kind of walking away um, from Huawei. But the fact that once Britain changed its position, it became harder and harder for Canada to really kind of be the, to say, you know, to give Huawei the, the total thumbs up. So 
I think, um, yeah, it wouldn't surprise me to see a decision um, maybe in the next month or so. Dr. Stephanie Carvin, Assistant Professor of International Affairs at Carleton University and an expert on national security issues, and Dr. Jeremy Peltiel, Professor of Politics, Government, and Foreign Policies of Asia at Carleton University. You're listening to the best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. I'm Jane Brown. Coming up after the break, Annamie Paul puts an end to the worst time of her life. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Good isn't good enough. Make way for the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. It was a week after the federal election that Annamie Paul resigned her role as leader of the federal Green Party. She told a news conference on Monday how it was the worst period of her life because of the way she was horribly treated by some of those within her own party. In the days after the September 20th vote, there were calls for a review of Aaron O'Toole's leadership of the Conservative Party, but those calls have since subsided. On Tuesday, Libby spoke about these issues with Fightback strategy panelists, John Capobianco, Senior Vice President and Senior Partner, Fleischman Hillard High Road, Bob Richardson, Liberal Strategist and Senior Counsel to National Public Relations, and Karen Stintz, CEO of Variety Village. I don't think she really had a choice. I mean, if she even had, you know, and she said she had no desire to continue on in the role, and um, which was good because I think that it just she would not have been able to, to have any legitimacy in the role. Unfortunately, finishing fourth place, and clearly, without the support of her own party, it makes it impossible for a leader to lead. So she did the only thing she could. Bob? Uh, yeah, look, I think she was treated appallingly. Do I think that she should have resigned? Yes. When you get 8% of the vote in your riding uh, and you get 2.3% nationally and previously you got 65 uh, those numbers indicate that you really should go down. She was treated appallingly. She was treated appallingly by her federal counsel and by Elizabeth May. Let's name some names here. Uh, uh, providing a federal leader no funding, no staff, no national campaign is unacceptable. It's Frankly, it's unheard of. So there, it, it only leads to uh, some very clear conclusions that there was anti-Semitism at play here, there was racism at play here, and there was misogyny here uh, uh, at play here too. And it's really too bad. I mean, the one good thing is I think it's exposed the, uh, the Greens for being a bit of a kook operation, uh, and they uh, and they have uh, they'll have some work to do to clean that up if they're going to be taken seriously as a national political voice again. John, we've had a little more clarity about Aaron O'Toole's future. Uh, now he has some more people coming out in support of him. Where do you think that is at, and what do you do you think his caucus will decide to trigger a review? Well, let me also say to Libby, just on the anime Paul chapter, and, and most political parties and those of us on the panel are, are well aware of this, that there's always, you know, machinations that happen after every election when, when a, a political party loses. Well, what's so appalling was that it actually happened before and during the election. Campaign, <laughs> and that's not heard of. Uh, you know, it's one, one thing to have it after the election, as, as you know, which is fair game, but to have it in the middle of the election or just before the election is kind of crazy. But with respect to Aaron O'Toole, 
um, you know, you know, people say there's knives. I'd say it's more like a box cutter than it, than it is <laughs> yeah. knives. Uh, you know, you've got one, uh, you know, national counselor who claims that, you know, he thinks that Aaron O'Toole should step down uh, and, you know, has about 2,000 signatures on a petition that he's had now for the last week or so. But you've got heavyweight MPs like Michelle Rempel, uh, and Gardner and others who are coming out, uh, and not least of which, of course, former Premier Mike Harris, who still wields a lot of influence uh, amongst conservatives, both, nas- both nationally and provincially, who basically said, you know, this is nonsense. And, and we just heard Brad Wall recently saying it as well. So you've got a lot of the, the, the party heavyweights coming out and basically saying this is crazy. I, I add my name to that list of people who think that it is just insane. Like, I think that, you know, Aaron O'Toole, uh, when he became leader during the pandemic, uh, you know, was leader about a year before the election campaign at a time when all the focus is on leaders and, and prime ministers and premiers and not the opposition leaders, uh, was not known. And then certainly did it had a really positive effect during the election campaign to a point where, you know, he was, was almost at par with the prime minister on the question of who makes the best prime minister. So from that perspective, a lot of positives. Did he make some mistakes? Sure. Uh, and the first thing he did when he lost the election was that he's going to do a review. And I think that's an important part of our party, which is to sort of say what worked, what didn't work. But to have the leadership now, when you just spend an election campaign getting to know the leader, is just crazy. Uh, and yeah. I think that doesn't think mean they won't be... do it. <laughs> I, I, I think this is a lazy media driven story. I think there's very little substance to the story. There's very little substance among the caucus, very little substance among voters, very little substance among defeated candidates. Every party has 15, 20, 25 percent of it will likely vote against a leader at any one time or another. I think this is lazy and uh, I think it is uh, not a particularly accurate story. Bob Richardson, liberal strategist and senior counsel to national public relations. John Capobianco, senior vice president and senior partner, Fleischman Hillard High Road. And Karen Stintz, CEO of Variety Village. Fight Back's Tuesday strategy panel. This is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. Have you been to the dentist lately? Many people have put off going because of the pandemic, but are now thinking it's time to go back now that COVID vaccination is so widespread. But there is a complication. Dentists are not required to disclose if they or their staff have been vaccinated against COVID-19. According to the Royal College of Dental Surgeons of Ontario, a patient cannot demand this information. If a patient wishes to avoid or delay booking dental appointments, that is their choice. While that law applies to all health professionals, the Ontario Medical Association, for instance, is encouraging doctors to be transparent, even if they're not legally obliged to do so. Dr. David Stevenson is the chair of the Ontario Dental Association's Pandemic Recovery Working Group and past president. Libby spoke with him about the issue on Tuesday. We're not really advising our members that they're not required. We're letting them know that. And there's a, you know, there's the, essentially, when you consider the Personal Health Information Protection Act, Everybody has their own different comfort level with this. And, and, you know, I'm, Libby, I'm entirely comfortable telling you right here on the radio that I have been fully vaccinated for quite a while. And I have this conversation routinely with my patients as I've been encouraging them to get vaccinated. But I can't share that information about my staff with you on the radio. 
So I think, you know, patients have, I understand entirely how this is, this can be an important issue to patients and uh, they can have this conversation with their dentist. But uh, not all dentists uh, may feel comfortable sharing that information, and certainly they may not feel comfortable sharing that information with their staff. But I think this it, you need to have a conversation, uh, and you need to have a conversation about the safety of going to dental offices. The law does not require, does not give everybody the right. It doesn't even give us the right to know the vaccination status of our own patients. Uh, okay, your patients. One thing, what about your staff. How are you handling that? I mean, I'm sure as with everywhere else, there are staff people who don't want to be vaccinated. Uh, hopefully not many of them. Yeah, no, and that's, that's a good point. And, you know, with the Ontario Dental Association, right at the very early stages, back in January, we advocated very strongly to help the dentists and their staff have early access to the vaccine. So we worked really hard, not just to get them uh, earlier access to the vaccinations, but also to help facilitate that by coordinating with the public health units that were actually administering the vaccinations. And that's when we found out that there was going to be some difficult conversations. And we do have resources for our members to help you have that sort of conversation with your staff. There's lots of different reasons why some member or a staff member may not wish to get vaccinated or may be uncertain about vaccination. And it's, it's a conversation that just can't occur once. It has to occur on numerous different times to, to sort of help people work through this. We know through our surveys that a significant amount number of dentists have been vaccinated. And we know that through helping them get that way. Uh, and their staff as well. Um, so it, it's this is very challenging, the pandemic, for everybody. And, and I think every employer is going to have this difficulty, and dental offices are no different. Let We're me, doing all we can to give dentists the resources to have that conversation because we fully support vaccination. And Dr. Sarah Hansen joins me now. How many of your patients actually ask you this? I would say there are a growing number of patients who are interested in knowing, and I've had the talk with my staff, and and they feel very comfortable disclosing that they have been vaccinated. So we've been telling people. I mean, it's um, I'm fortunate to have a staff that uh, just we had conversations about this earlier in 2020 um, as sort of as the vaccines were starting to come out in 2021. And so we were discussing the science of it, and there was a little bit less hesitancy, especially as a large part of the world was sort of getting the vaccine and and there was good results with it. So I've been lucky in, in that my staff has been all vaccinated and people are interested. We'll see if that becomes something that we need to disclose or if it's just going to be a personal decision for offices. Is there anything you'd like to leave us with, Dr. Hansen? I'm I'm just happy that things are gradually, um, you know, just opening up more in terms of the vaccination rate going up. It's 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 creating a safer environment for everybody. I'm I'm very encouraged. That was Libby's own dentist, Dr. Sarah Hansen, and before her, Dr. David Stevenson, chair of the Ontario Dental Association's Pandemic Recovery Working Group and past president. I'm Jane Brown, and this is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. Still to come, what you had to say about the week that was and the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week. 
You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Zoomer Radio, pulling no punches with the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Fight Back with Libby Snymer brings you comprehensive coverage of the news stories that interest you and your reaction to them on the phones. We've gone through the audio. Here are some of the best calls of the past week. Jerry in Newcastle phoned about the treatment of Meng Wenzhou by Canada versus the treatment of the Michaels by China. The one thing that always bothered me on this with the two Michaels is why did our judicial system allow her to live like a queen in a castle in Vancouver while the two Michaels were living worse than the dog? If she's arrested for that, then she should go to jail like anybody else. And now, Fightback's Knockout Call of the Week. There were a lot of great calls this week, but the winner of the Fightback Knockout Call of the Week comes from Jim in Pickering, who phoned on the first National Day for Truth and Reconciliation. What a somber day. And it is in our schools, and it's been normalized. It's in our churches as well, and our religion. And, you know, Libby, uh, so I, I just want to know why we're not hearing from these religious organizations that ran the institutions that would be maybe the only ones that know how those children got in those graves, what happened, right? Where are the records, right? And I'm not looking for an apology. I'm just looking for the truth, as in truth and reconciliation. That does it for today's Best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. If you'd like to qualify for the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week, phone us noon to one weekdays. Or if you have a comment, email us at fightback at zoomer.ca. Follow us on Twitter at Fight Back Libby and call our Fight Back voicemail anytime at 416-367-9636. I'm Jane Brown. Join me again at the same time tomorrow when we'll round up the rest of the best of Fight Back. The best of Fight Back is produced by Jane Brown, Justin Eacock, and Zeev Hadi with technical production by Kelly Robotham. Executive producer, Moses Neimer. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.